Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Welcome, everybody, to Histories of the Unexpected, the show in which we demonstrate how everything has a history, even the most unexpected of subjects, like ribbons, clips, and pungency. Oh, Sam, I, I love the idea of pungency. It's all about the history of smell, really strong smells. But we've all, for the moment, be following the links in our minds as we come across them, explaining how those histories link together in unexpected ways. Who knew, for example, who knew, Sam? that the history of cannibalism is in fact all about Tudor medicine. They literally ate mummy corpses. Or that the history of paperbacks is in fact all about freedom during World War II. The man not sitting opposite me because we're social distancing, but he will pilot us through these micro-histories. Is one of the country's leading professors of history. It's Professor Extraordinaire James Daybell. Hello, James. Hello, Sam. And the man not sitting opposite me, but ably helping me co-pilot these episodes, is the famous historical adventurer himself, Dr Sam Willis. This is the seventh, seven, goodness me, of our special Christmas-themed micro-histories in which we embrace the task of demonstrating how an unexpected subject not only has a history but is massively important and very, very interesting. We do it in just 15 minutes and we do it without just talking faster. We start with a shared example and then have just five minutes each to make a case for an interesting history on that very unexpected subject. Contributions are rigorously timed. And you, dear listeners, you will get to vote on social media on what you think is the most interesting fact you heard today. Today's uh, topic inspired by Christmas is uh, the very obviously Christmas-themed history of obscenity. Uh, Right, James, where are we going to start? Well, Sam, you might think that Christmas is all about the Christmas story. You might think that it is all about crackers and Christmas trees and whatever. But nothing says Christmas quite like obscenity. Because it was also a time for subversion during the High Middle Ages and during the Renaissance, when snowmen, snowmen, were regularly built as winter effigies. Now, during the cold winter of 1510 to 1511, the citizens of the city of Brussels built around 110 individual snowmen around the city, and all they depicted 
all manner of things in snow folklore. Figures such as unicorns and mermaids, they displayed religious and political themes, and here, to the point of this podcast, as well as extreme sexual and even scatological imagery. Now, get this, one of the more sexualized sculptures could be found in a part of the city called Rosendahl, which was the red light district of the city, which depicted a prostitute completely naked with breasts and genitalia sculpted to attract attention and also a dog ensconced between her legs. Get that for obscenity. <laughs> ensconced, I quite like. Uh, the more uh, scatological, that's poo-based humour, um, was a snow cow, so a cow made out of snow, that delivered, um, here I'm quoting here, turds, farts and stinking, a defecating centaur, a mannequin piss fountain depicting a small boy urinating into the mouth of a drinker and finally a drunk drowning in his own poo. These are obviously a far cry from the jolly, happy soul that we know from the Frosty the Snowman song of 1950. Absolutely amazing history there, James. But where are you going to take this now? Where else can we do? What can we do with the history of obscenity? Aha, well, I'm going to take you to 17th century Devon. That's where I'm right. going to take you. But you need to rigorously time me, Sam. I will. You're ready to go. 17th century Devon in uh, three, two, one. Begin your five minutes. Start now. Oh, well, have I got a humdinger for you here, Sam. Obscenity is is all about the early modern street. And I'm back to the 16th and 17th century and back to the church courts. Now, this was a period in which the church sought to police social behaviour and any infraction of societal norms was, of course, brought before these courts. And we're talking here about all sorts of cases from slander and drunkenness and debauchery, people insulting authority, showing disrespect to the church itself. One parishioner was caught saying that he thought that the Sunday's sermon was not worth a fart from his tail. And this is something that I think is always important to bear in mind when you consider popular religion during the Reformation period. It's all too often all about theology and high politics when at grassroots level it's all about apathy, superstition and ignorance. It's a little bit like our modern political system that spawned the two Bs, Brexit and Boris. So when we look at the history of insult, we were talking about obscenities there. And often this side of society is overlooked in the standard history. It's glossed over, it's erased, it's excised. But in actual fact, it's an enormous part of the lives and experiences of people of the past. And the puritanical forms of selection and archiving should not marginalise nor mute it because it has a real history. And everyday life does not simply exist along the preserved contours, but is excavated on the margin, Sam. This is an enormous preamble to get to the meat, and I return here to Todd Gray's excellent book, Strumpets and Ninnycocks, Name-Calling in Devon, which trawls through the consistory courts in Devon for deviancy and transgression. And it's here that we find obscenity. And I'm going to talk a little bit about a chapter called Lecherous Men, which is all about whoremongers, cuckolds and whittles. So there are all sorts of men who are accused of being sort of caught up in having transgressed the bounds of sexual decency. And 
they go to court because they call each other all kinds of names. So one of the most popular is calling somebody a cuckold. And a cuckold doesn't necessarily mean that you've done anything yourself. It's actually a criticism that your wife has been uh, an adulterer behind or an adulteress behind your back. And several Devonians, you know, um, use this term about their about their their sort of fellow men. And the word cuckold, a man from Stoke Cannon in 1615, uh, is recorded to have said, is generally accounted and reputed and held to be a scandalous and an opprobrious word by which his wife is meant to be a whore and a woman of incontinent or adulterous life. They get that. Um, there's a, a, a fellow in Bradnich um, who, be warned for any of you in Bradnich, who... Um, was supposed to have grown horns at the sight of his wife, um, which basically the horns are these sort of are showing that you've you've got these sort of cuckold horns that show that your wife has been sleeping behind your back. Now, far worse than being called a cuckold was in fact being called a whittle, W-I-T-T-O-L-S. And this was apparently nine times worse, exactly nine times worse than being a cuckold. <laughs> exactly. Um, Nicholas Breton in 1605 in, in An Old Man's Lesson and Young Man's Love described it as a, a name of the most monstrous beast. And the lad answers, a whittle because he hath a world of horns. And it's described uh, the world, the, the the word. A witness in Exeter explained in 1622 that the wife of a man of whom the said word whittle is spoken was and is an incontinent woman and a whore, and that her husband hath and does consent to her incont incontinency and whoredom. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Want truly hydrated skin? Medocia's Body Care Breakthrough Hyaluronic Body Serum. It's clinically proven to increase hydration by 161%. It's lightweight, fast-absorbing, and delivers 24 hours of hydration for silky smooth skin without any sticky afterfeel. Treat your skin to clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order with code SUMMER at OseaMalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A Malibu.com code SUMMER. So there we are, Sam. Uh, obscenity in uh, 16th and 17th century Devon. 
is all about, and I think you're <laughs> going to pause me now with a sound. I am. I am going to pause you. There we go. That's your obscenity beep. Can you hear that? Uh, the uh, the history of uh, uh, editing and uh, stopping people listening to obscene things on on, on the radio Excellent. and on podcasts. Excellent. Go on, you can finish well, up. James. Obscenity for me is all about uh, name calling in 16th and 17th century Devon, Sam. Very nice indeed. I and very local that. for us. Yeah, yeah. I like the Bradninch thing. I've been there playing cricket quite a few times. I have a very good friend who lives in Bradninch. Um, yeah. uh, he's not a he's not a whittle or a cuckold. No. Um, as far as I know. As far as you know. You never know, though. Well, gosh. OK, I'm ready to go. OK, well, I shall be studiously and rigorously timing you. Um, where are we? Here we are, uh, setting my timer. Do you know the other day I actually set my timer for you uh, and it went off? Um, OK, on your marks, get set, do history, Sam. <laughs> so you do history. It's a bit like the start to Bake Off, but do history. <laughs> do right, history. you've used up five seconds already. You better get no, started. Okay, okay, okay. I'm going to America in the uh, mid-19th century to talk about Victorian-era morals. And um, it is a fairly astonishing tale and a rather sad one. And it starts with a chap called Anthony Comstock. Uh, he was uh, born in 1844, died in 1915. Very significant man uh, in the American legal uh, history profession. In particular, he was an anti-vice crusader, um, was known for fathering uh, United States obscenity law. He began professional life as a United States postal inspector. I don't know why I like that, but I really do like the fact that he was a postal inspector. Before becoming, check this out for the name of, a, of something, James, he's the secretary of the New York Society for the Suppression of Vice. What sort of a man was he? He was a zealot. He was uh, particularly against the producers of what he considered to be pornography, which actually involved any material at all that discussed sex, including birth control literature and pamphlets. He even saw um, sporting newspapers, particularly one called The Day's Doings, as um, being a, a purveyor of obscene images. And he was particularly concerned about their effect on youth, on young people, because um, these kind of sporting newspapers were so readily available to view. Um, this gives you a bit of a taster of the guy. Um, talking about these illustrated weekly papers... Um, uh, he said this in in 1883. Satan, <laughs> yes, that's how I've gone. Satan resolved to make the most of these vile illustrated weekly papers by lining the newsstands and shop windows along the pathway of the children from home to school and church so that they could not go to and from these places of instruction without giving him an opportunity to defile their pure minds by flaunting these atrocities. Um, so this guy was a proper baddie. James, this will horrify you. Throughout his okay. life, he destroyed 15 tonnes of books, £284,000 of plates for printing objectionable books, nearly 4 million pictures. He claimed that books were feeders for brothels. Uh, he was responsible for 4,000 arrests. He claimed he drove... He, cla he personally claimed this, right? He drove 15 people to suicide in, in what he described as his fight for the young. So on the one hand, you have this Anthony Comstock, right? On the other, I want to talk about Eda Craddock. 
She's an advocate of free speech, um, women's writings, sexual education. She writes um, a whole history of pamphlets, um, which essentially at the time they're known as marriage manuals um, with titles like The Wedding Night. And it's kind of like sex education, basically, in the mid 19th century. She makes some very radical points. Uh, not le- least, um, she asserts that to force intercourse on a man's wife without des- her desiring it amounts to rape, um, which seems pretty obvious to us now, but really was quite a radical notion at the time. Um, here's a little bit of, uh, of, of of her writings from The Wedding Night. This is her advice to newlywed couple on their honeymoon. The very first thing for you to bear in mind is that inasmuch as nature has so arranged sex that the man is always ready, as a rule, for intercourse, whereas the woman is not, it is most unwise for the man to precipitate matters by exhibiting desire for genital contact when the woman is not yet aroused. You should remember that the organ of which you are justly so proud is not possessed by a woman and that she is utterly ignorant of its functions, practically until she has experienced sexual contact, and that it is to her who is not desirous of such contact something of a monstrosity. What happens is that at the behest of Comstock, Ida is tried and convicted by writing about um, things like this as a guidance for for the sexual lives of young married people. And the judge declares that the wedding night is so obscene, lewd, lascivious and dirty that the jurors, well, the jurors, right, are not allowed to actually see it during the trial. So it's very one-sided. Anyway, she then writes a letter. And uh, this is where it gets sad. To the public, I am taking my life because a judge at the instigation of Anthony Comstock has decreed me guilty of a crime which I did not commit, the circulation of obscene literature, and has announced his intention of consigning me to prison for a long term. The man is a sex pervert. He is what physicians term a sadist, namely a person in whom the impulses of cruelty arise concurrently with a stirring of sex emotion. The sadist finds delight in inflicting either physical cruelty or mental humiliation upon the source of that emotion. He also may find pleasure in gloating over the possibilities of others. <laughs> What's that? That is the shower scene from the 1960 film Psycho. Ah, which is sort good. of sort of obscene in a sort of um, very violent, <laughs> horrific way. Yeah, it's amazing just listening to the noise of that without Isn't actually it? seeing it. Let me finish up because um, this is uh, she finishes this letter. She rages about Comstock and how um, important her work is. Um, and how she hates to see husbands and wives suffering, how nearly all the suffering could be done away with if only Anthony Comstock were not hoodwinking the public into believing that sexual information must be kept away from. Um, she finishes the letter and then she um, slashes her own wrists and inhales the gas from the oven in her apartment and she dies. So very sad indeed. Um, but wow, an amazing story there. Um, so in this respect, um, obscenity is all about... Um, an unfair persecution of people wanting to learn about sexual lives in America in the 1840s. It's about suicide. It's about um, sexual perversity. It's about it's about your behaviour on a wedding night. Um, I'd love to do more of that story, James. Oh, it sounds very good, Sam. Uh, you should yeah. write it up and pop mm, it as do. a little blog entry on our Histories of the Unexpected magazine, perchance. chance. 
Thank you all very much for listening to us. Do please follow me on social media. I'm at Dr. Sam Willis. And I'm at James Daybell. And the podcast is at Unexpected Pod. We are also on Instagram and follow us on Facebook as well. And we also have a website, historiesoftheunexpected.com, where you can see everything that we've been up to over the past few years. Yeah, and you can buy yourself some nice signed books there as well. We're going to be continuing with this Christmas micro-history series. We're doing one on carrots in the next few days, so be sure to listen in to The Wonderful History of Carrots. Bye, guys. Bye, guys, and hope you're feeling festive. <laughs>